This morning we're going to consider the cross and fear God. Consider the cross and fear God. 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 17 through to 20. Imagine that you have the best dad in the whole world. A dad who loves you. He takes good care of you. He protects you. And in return, you love your dad. Does it follow that you will be obedient to your dad? Maybe the answer is yes. I don't know. I can only speak for myself here. To answer that question, does it follow that that you will be obedient to your dad? Because he loves you, you love him. Answering for myself, regrettably, the answer is no. There has to be a healthy fear as well as love, if there is to be obedience. To give you an example, I I was thinking about my old headmaster when I was at secondary school. I really liked him and I respected him. He was an elderly man. I think everybody had a healthy respect for him. Everyone seemed to like him. I can remember that he didn't wield the um, the sword of justice, but he did wield the cane. And I felt that cane a few times. And so, as well as liking him and respecting him, I had a healthy fear of him. Mind you, that didn't stop me from being a, a naughty boy at times. But I'm sure I wasn't as naughty as I might have been. Because... I didn't want to end up in his office too often. And so I did have a fear for him. And that his cane was his cane was inducement enough for me to rein back at least some of my bad behaviour. Likewise, my dad, whom I loved, was not someone to be trifled with. Consequently, when he gave me something to do, I did it. I didn't give him any back chat. I just got on with it. And I really did love my dad. But I didn't mess with him. The same applies when it comes to the Heavenly Father. I'm always a bit nervous about about making these comparisons. Us, sinful creatures, and God who is holy and pure. But same applies to the Heavenly Father, even though his children are born-again Christians... We read in the Bible, new creatures in Christ. And I take that, uh, we are new creatures spiritually. We are different. If you're a Christian, you are different to someone who is not in Christ Jesus. Despite all of those things, and despite being in Christ, whom you love, just like the Christians we read in our In 1 Peter, they loved Jesus. Although they'd never seen him, they loved him. And we have never seen Jesus, yet if we are new creatures in Christ, we love him. And though you earnestly desire to be obedient to your heavenly Father, whom you love, you you can still very easily end up doing your own will, despite all of that love. Doing your own will, even though you might pray, Thy will be done. How often have I prayed thy will be done 
Every morning for over 20 years, I pray thy will be done. And sometimes before afternoon, I'm, I'm only too aware that it's my will that has been done. As such, faith must be mixed with a godly fear. We'll turn now to the word of God where it is written in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 17. And if ye call on the Father who, without respect of persons, judgeth according to every man's work, doesn't matter who you are in here, God will judge you according to your works. Pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. That's what we're told in verse 17. So, what is the relationship between Christians and their Heavenly Father? Christians are under grace and not under the law. Where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. Their acceptance before their Heavenly Father is not on account of their good works and their obedience to the law. Rather, it is on account of the Lord Jesus Christ who fulfilled the law's demands on their behalf and he also paid the debt of their sin at the cross. Is all of that true? Absolutely. It's all true. But the trouble is, for some Christians, the liberty that they now have through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ leads them to think that God is a big softy. Rather like an irresponsible dad or granddad who wants an easy life. So what does he do? He turns a blind eye instead of dealing with situations. That's God with that kind of attitude of heart. As for those Christians fearing God, forget it. With their kind of misunderstanding uh, of who God is, and with that kind of attitude of heart, There is no question of them fearing God. There can't be. It is an attitude of heart that flies in the face of what the Apostle Paul said to the Philippian Christians when he spoke to them about working out their own salvation with fear and trembling. An example of the benefit of having a godly fear can be found in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 7, where we are told that Noah was a man of faith. Even so, we are told that it was his godly fear, his reverential fear, that motivated him to build the ark, having been warned of God of the impending judgment. I'm saying that because I've been told by some clever people that, um, that Noah, his fear was of the people. All those people that mocked him and didn't believe him. That's not what, that's not what Hebrews chapter 11 verse 7 tells us. His fear was as a result of being spoken to by God and warned of the judgment to come. Even so, we are told that it was his godly fear, not his faith, that motivated him to build the ark having been warned of that judgment. Of that verse, Spurgeon said, faith and fear can live in the same heart and they can work together to build the same ark. 
Faith and fear are very sweet companions when the fear is filial. A holy dread of disobeying God. When we are moved with that fear, our faith becomes practical. It's not really rocket science, is it? Again, it's about loving your dad, but also fearing him. The two come together and they, 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 they sit together very well. Verse 17, where we read there, sojourning here in fear at the very end of verse 17. That comes, that follows on rather from previous verses where the apostle Paul, uh, the apostle Peter exhorted Christians to be sober or serious minded. That was in verse 13. To be obedient children, verse 14. And to be holy, verse 16. Serious minded, obedient and holy. The person who is all of those things is also someone who passes the time of his sojourning in fear of God. The Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, said to his disciples, Fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Let me just repeat what I said there. Jesus was speaking to his disciples when he said that. Fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Fear God. That really ought to be the end of the matter. The message from the mouth of the Son of God could not be clearer. We are to fear God. In complete opposition to those words of Jesus, the people of the world, they fear men. They fear men, but they do not fear God, which is rather foolish to say the least. They openly defy God, and they willfully transgress his laws. Many insist that there is no God, even though his power can be clearly seen in the things that he has created. There for all of us to see. Just look at one another. It speaks of God. And yet people say, I don't believe in God. Also, the work of God's law is written in our hearts. Each one of us here, his law is written in our hearts for your own conscience and thoughts either accuse you or tell you that you are doing the right thing. What do you think your conscience is all about? People really have no excuse. And you know what? Such people are sinfully foolish. Alas, as it is written in Psalm 14 and verse 1, the fool have said in his heart, there is no God. Far better not to be a fool, far better to be, to fear God. As it is written in Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. As the hymn writer said, that man is blessed who, fearing God, from sin restrains his feet, who will not stand with wicked men, who shuns the scorner's seat. 
looking again at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17, the Apostle Peter said, And if ye call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. Calling on the Father is not about shouting up to heaven and praying to God. It's about being a child of God. That's what it means to call on the Father. It means knowing God as your Father. Putting it another way, it's about having a saving faith in his beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian, you are someone who calls on the Father. No one else calls on the Father. He is, God is only a Father to those who are Christians, who are in Christ. Through his Son whom he has committed all judgment, God judges people according to their works. And that will be the criteria on the day of judgment. Again, verse 17, and if we put Peter, obviously speaking to Christians here, if we call on the Father, who without respect of persons, judgeth according to every man's work. As the Apostle Paul said in the to the Christians in Ephesus, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We've already looked at that today. No one is saved through their good works. No boasting in heaven. But then Paul went on to say, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, born again, new creatures in Christ Jesus, unto good works, which God have before ordained that we should walk in them. People seem to struggle with verses like that, but it seems very clear to me that you are saved unto good works and your salvation by grace alone ought to be seen in your works. It's not a difficult concept. Therefore, if you are someone who calls on the Father, it means that you have, that you have been saved from your sins by the grace of God through faith in Jesus and the fruit of that God-given faith ought to be seen in good works. And you, dear Christian, are to pass your sojourning in fear as you draw on God's grace to do the good works that he has prepared for you in order that you might honour and glorify him during your sojourning in this world. Doing the works that God has given you, being a light for the Lord Jesus Christ, that men might see your good works and glorify God. Sounds good, doesn't it? It's scripture. It really is scripture. Let's have a look at verses 18 and 19. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. The verse starts with for as much. And so often the first word in a verse tells us so much, so important. Therefore... For as much, and it immediately gets you to look at the previous verses. And we can see, because verse 18 starts with for as much, 
we know that there's a connection with the previous verses because of it tells us that the godly fear that you ought to have as you continue as a stranger and as a pilgrim in this world it proceeds from a knowledge of the great cost to the Lord Jesus Christ for your redemption his precious blood and therefore his death on the cross that is why you continue your pilgrimage in fear because of that knowledge of what it cost Jesus that's what's being said there that ought to induce a godly fear in you when you think of the Lord Jesus Christ being lifted up to die on the cross and God the Father laying upon him your iniquity when you read about Jesus bearing your sin in his body on the tree that ought to induce a fear a godly reverential fear as you continue on continue your sojourning here and you do so in fear by faith you know with an absolute certainty that Jesus was wounded for your transgressions, that he was bruised for your iniquities, that he paid your debt of sin with his own precious blood. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9, the Apostle Paul said the following about Jesus, For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. Jesus made himself poor, that you might be rich. Jesus becoming poor, by the way, has nothing to do with having little or no money or riches in the world. Although it is true to say that he was not rich in a worldly sense. As Jesus himself said, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man have nowhere to lay his head. Neither does the Lord Jesus Christ becoming poor have anything to do with him becoming flesh. After all, after making an end to sin at the cross and rising victorious from the death, uh, from the dead, what happened? God highly exalted him. God highly exalted Jesus, the man who is God. Even now, more than 2,000 years later, Jesus still has a body, a glorified body. And as both God and man, he is uniquely qualified to sit at the right hand of his father where he ever liveth to make intercession for all whom he has redeemed with his own precious blood, the man who is God, glorified in heaven. However, when the Lord Jesus Christ came down from his glory into this dark world of sin, he humbled himself. He really did. Even though he did not come in sinful flesh like us, he did nevertheless come in the likeness of sinful flesh. In other words, he took on himself not only a human body, but the entire human nature, weakened by sin, but without sin. 
For example, Jesus, who is the self-sufficient creator God, thirsted. Who can imagine that God, the creator, would thirst? Also, when he was on his way to the place of crucifixion, execution, a man by the name of Mark was ordered to carry his cross. Presumably, Jehovah Jesus, who upholds all things by the word of his power. Jesus, who upholds this entire universe by the word of his power, had become too weak to to carry his own cross. When Jesus came into the world as a suffering servant in the likeness of sinful flesh, he never parted company with his divine attributes. How could he? How can God stop being God? However, most of the time, Jesus did not use his divine power or his omniscience. But there were nevertheless times when he did, and you see that in the Gospels. There were clearly times when Jesus showed by through what he knew or what he did that he is God. The King of Glory, the Lord Jesus Christ, he became poor by exchanging his heavenly throne for a cattle trough, trough when he was born of a virgin. He became poor by becoming a servant. He became poor when he became obedient to the law. Even though as God, he is the law giver. Work that one out. Jesus, the law giver, becoming obedient unto the law. He became poor when he endured the reproach of wicked men. And ultimately, Jesus became poor when he poured out his blood for his redeemed as the sacrificial lamb of God. With respect to Jesus being the sacrificial lamb, we're told in verse 20 that he was foreordained before the foundation of the world. In other words, Jesus poured out his precious blood and he laid down his life as a sacrifice for sin in accordance with God's eternal decree. God ordained that it would happen. Can you see at least something of the magnitude of the love of God in those words? Look at there, verse 20, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world. In other words, it didn't catch God by surprise when Jesus was crucified. God himself had decreed it would happen. What you can see in that, or ought to be able to see, is something of the love of God. We're told in the Bible that God is love. And we see it in the fact that he ordained, foreordained his son, decreed that his son would come into the world and redeem people with his own precious blood. It is a love that transcends time. It is a love that decreed sending his only begotten son to be the sacrificial lamb. And then in the fullness of time, it is a love that laid upon Jesus the iniquity of all who have been redeemed with that precious soul-cleansing blood. As the hymn writer said concerning the cost to the Lord Jesus Christ, of your redemption, dear Christian, 
what sacred fountain yonder springs up from the throne of God and all new covenant blessings bring. Tis Jesus' precious blood, what mighty sum paid all my debt when I a bondman stood and has my soul at freedom set. Tis, tis Jesus' precious blood. As a result of the Son of God making himself poor, God has made all of you who have been redeemed with that precious blood rich. He has made you rich in the sense that he has brought you out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and he has set your feet upon a rock whose name is Jesus. You are anchored to that rock. You have a certain hope of heavenly glory. God has given you, forgiven you all your iniquities and he has redeemed your life from destruction. He has crowned you with loving kindness and tender mercies. As the redeemed of the Lord, you are rich beyond comprehension in that God has blessed you with not some, but with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Dear Christian, since your redemption cost the Lord Jesus Christ so much, prize it highly and do not go back to the sin from which you have been so dearly redeemed. Fear lest you should do so. The knowledge of what your freedom cost Jesus ought to bring you to your knees in reverence and in fear of God as you earnestly seek to walk in obedience to him. Lest at the judgment, the Lamb of God says, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Finally, may it please God for every one of you to bow down before him as repentant sinners, trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ and the blood of his cross as you acknowledge the perfect holiness of God and that God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be had in reverence of all who are about him. Amen.